We don't have a whole lot of time today. We had a lot going on. I, Peter's kind words to me took up some time, although I love him. I got, so we got to jump in, guys. All right, we got to jump in. Now everybody take a deep breath. It's week two of this guy. I'm sorry. All right, two straight weeks of me. I know that can be overwhelming, but uh, we're going to kind of jump right in. Uh, we're in our fourth and final week of our Rise and Fall series, okay? And it's a survey of the kings of Israel to see, kind of examine their life and see what that means for us. Last week, we talked about King Solomon and how this gradual degradation of his life into idolatry, into self-reliance, abusing the gifts that God had gave him, uh, really rendered his life. Uh, He he had a self-reliance that that retreated him away from the goodness of the promised king, who is Jesus. And we saw how our life parallels that in many ways. Well, this week, we're going to take just one step down the ladder, and we're going to get to Rehoboam. That's actually Solomon's son. Now, we don't know as much about Rehoboam or his reign, but what we do know is that he's a great example of how God interacts with man. And as we've gone through this series for the past three weeks, we've done a lot to kind of focus on these men's lives. And I think there's no better way to conclude the series than to really take that gaze away from the man and say, now let's examine how God looks and interacts with us. So we're going to go ahead and start with this distinct moment in Rehoboam's life, and that's in Second Chronicles 12. If you would stand with me in honor of God's word, we're going to read verses 1 through 8. And then we're going to go ahead and jump right in, okay? Now, when Rehoboam had established his sovereignty and royal power, he abandoned the law of the Lord. He and all Israel with him because they were unfaithful to the Lord. In the fifth year of King Rehoboam, King Shishak of Egypt went to war against Jerusalem with 1,200 chariots, 60,000 cavalrymen, and countless people who came with him from Egypt, Libyans, Sukkim, and Cushites. He captured the fortified cities of Judah and came as far as Jerusalem. Then the prophet Shemaiah went to Rehoboam and the leaders of Judah who were gathered at Jerusalem because of Shishak. He said to them, this is what the Lord says. You have abandoned me, therefore I have abandoned you to Shishak. So the leaders of Israel and the king humbled themselves and said, the Lord is righteous. When the Lord saw that they had humbled themselves, the Lord's message came to Shemaiah. They have humbled themselves. I will not destroy them, but I will grant them a little deliverance. My wrath is not to be poured out on Jerusalem through Shishak. However, they will become servants so that they may recognize the difference between serving me and serving the kingdoms of other lands. Uh, As you're being seated, if you would pray with me. Father, thank you so much for your word. Uh, We ask that you would open our hearts and our minds to receive what you would have for us in a way that glorifies you, God, but also ushers us into our good, uh, and they are all so often one and the same. Uh, we love you. We thank you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so as I mentioned, we don't know a lot about Rehoboam. We don't know too much about him. What we do know is that his kingdom, his reign, was filled with tension. The, the kingdom of Israel actually split into two separate camps while under Rehoboam. They had the northern camp, which was led by Jeroboam, don't get confused, and the southern, Judah, which was led by Rehoboam. This largely happened because Rehoboam was stupid. I'll be honest with you. He had a moment where he listened to young advisors that he grew up with, and he neglected the advice of older advisors that had given him a lot of wisdom. Now, apart from this, what we do also know about Rehoboam is that he did do some good things. The Bible says that he dedicated three years of his reign to the ways of his fathers, David and Solomon. It's obviously earlier Solomon, but he dedicated three years to worshiping God and following in his statutes. 
We know that the priests uh, of the God's priests in the northern kingdom actually left Jeroboam's kingdom Israel and went to Judah so that they could worship God. By the way, again, another a little disclaimer this week. Again, we're trying to take years and put it into like 40 minutes. So I encourage you again this week, read your Bible. Uh, so if you have any holes, if you have any questions, um, you can email me. Uh, it's pretty easy, right? This is like Josh at the name of the church. But at the same time, uh, you can easily open your Bible and get most of the questions answered. Um, now, on the other side, we do understand that there was this moment that we arrive at today after he dedicates these three years. In, Rome, in, Rome, in 2 Chronicles 12, uh, what we end up seeing is that at the beginning of Rehoboam's fourth year uh, ruling, it says that he establishes his sovereignty and his royal power, and then he abandons the law of the Lord. And I want to take a moment here because I want to stop and highlight a bit of a pattern that should have been coming up in our minds as we've gone through the past four weeks. It seems that there's a bit of complacency, a bit of mediocrity, that tends to settle in and give some comfort. And it seems like the pattern of this is that once that happens, we stumble. People stumble. We can look back all four weeks and see this happen. Whether it's Saul in the beginning when he, he conquers the Philistines, but then he, he's conquered them, but he doesn't want to quite kill their king yet, but, you know, so he, he kind of resists doing that and disobeys God. Whether it's David not doing his work during the spring to go and fight wars, but sending his generals, the Bible says he was laying on his couch in the middle of the day, gets up and sees uh, Bathsheba, he falls into that temptation. Whether it's the slow, gradual temptation that we see uh, uh, Solomon work through as he kind of becomes self-reliant over the course of years, or whether it's Rehoboam today when we see him finally establish his kingdom. Uh, and he has to fight for it, but once he gets it, he says, whew, now I'm going to abandon the law of the Lord. Now that wasn't, that wasn't the, directly the way that happened. Do you see that? It, it actually became, well, man, I'm comfortable now. Man, I don't got to fight as hard now. And there's a gradual slip into abandoning the law of the Lord. And that's really the pattern of humanity. That's the pattern of humanity. We all sit here and we, we can become complacent. And if you're a believer, this is absolutely true. I'm, I just, there's no other way to this. absolutely true. We, we have a purpose defined by God. And that's to bring him glory, to glorify him through our life, and to grow into the maturity of Christ. And that is our reason for being. But when we get complacent, and what I'm not saying is that when we get complacent trying to achieve some kind of job, let's correct that. I'm not at all saying you can go do that. You can absolutely pursue what you want to do in life. You should. I hope everyone here is successful in whatever they elect to do. But I hope you take the gospel and you're a light with you wherever you go in that career. Because your purpose underneath that is far greater. What, what undergirds that, what props that up is that you would glorify God and grow into his maturity. But when we to get, start to get comfortable and, and let our guard down there, then, then the enemy and, and sin, the enemy of our life, comes and tries to subvert us. And we have to be on guard for that. We have to be on guard for that. Some people call this a, a wartime mentality. John Piper, who's a pastor in Minneapolis, calls this a, a holy schizophrenia. Uh, when we're, we're actively looking at sin and saying, you will not conquer me. You will not, I will fight tooth and nail against you. It doesn't mean that I win, but it means that every single moment I will fight tooth and nail to kill this sin. 
I will protect this purpose that God has given me with my life. I will fight and fight and fight to protect it. And it doesn't mean that I win, but it means the posture of my heart is honoring to God. Are you going to do, and this, this, is, this is the, the constant, constant fight, constant battle, uh, but the Puritan writer John Owen, he, he encapsulated this beautifully in his book, The Mortification of Sin, literally the killing of sin. He said, do you mortify? Do you kill? Do you make it your daily work? Now, now, think about what he's saying. Every day, do you actively look at sin, take up your sword, and say, I'm going to fight you and kill you? Be always at it whilst you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin, lest sin be killing you. That's powerful, to see sin as the enemy of our lives, the enemy of our souls, what looks to subvert our lives and bring us to death. And this bit of comfort and complacency leads us to that when we're not careful, when we're not on guard. I hope we see this because it had drastic repercussions in the life of Rehoboam. We see that after he abandons the law of the Lord, uh, Shishak, the king of Egypt, comes into Judah and begins to invade. Uh, it's thought to be that Shishak had united the kingdom of Egypt, which had been divided. And, and through the days of Solomon and David, uh, Saul and David, uh, Shishak was like, yeah, that's a pretty small kingdom. They're doing good. But then Solomon, as we heard last week, starts amassing gold and peacocks and apes. I don't know what that's about still. But uh, he starts amassing all these things. And then Shishak goes, man, they're kind of dangerous. And he says, now that I'm stronger, I'm going to go invade them. What we find out is Shemaiah comes to the leaders of Judah and says, no, because you've abandoned the Lord, the Lord says he's abandoned you to Shishak. The response to their sin was the Lord saying, I have indicted you. You're wrong, you're guilty, and you're punished. I'm abandoning you to him. And then something uniquely beautiful happens in Rehoboam's story that really turns and pivots the story differently. In verse 6 of 2 Chronicles, the writer of 2 Chronicles says, So the leaders of Israel and the king, Rehoboam, humbled themselves and said, The Lord is righteous. Now, we can read over that. And we can kind of just glance over and think, Okay, yeah, he said, I'm sorry. But, but that's not what he said. He said, The Lord is righteous. That's kind of astonishing in the culture that we live in today, where love is equated to affirmation. And if I tell you you're wrong in anything, you have the right to say, well, that's what you think. But I think I'm right. There's a humility that's found in Rehoboam that we can learn from, but the humility has very little to do with Rehoboam. The humility has more to do with the, the emphasis, who uh, Rehoboam emphasized when he humbled himself. He didn't just say, man, I'm wrong. He said, he's right. Yeah, that's good. He's right. right. He didn't simply say, man, I, I made a mistake. He said, no, that the Lord, he's judged me and he's punished me and now he's indicted me to be lost and destroyed. And that is righteous. That is good. Now, that hurts. That's kind of scary because, uh, like I mentioned, in our culture, that's a little bit of a sting. But when you begin to engage somebody, you begin to understand that there's, you have difference of opinions. 
His humility wasn't just found in saying that he was wrong, but it was saying that, man, God is right. It's like, a, and the, that kind of reveals and unveils a bit of where your heart is. If you're like, if you're ever in like a group project, like at school or like at work, and there's that one guy that's like really bullheaded and had a really poor idea, there's other better ideas, but this dude just bull rushed and made sure his idea was going to get taken. And then the whole thing falls apart. Everybody's angry. Everybody's frustrated. And dude comes back in and is like, well, I, you know, I guess I wasn't right. Or he does even better yet. He's like, it's that guy's fault. Um, you're frustrated. You're still like, man, that guy is a jerk. You're probably not calling him a jerk. You're probably thinking of some three and four letter words to call that man. But if he comes in and goes, man, you know, I was wrong. And honestly, that was the better idea. I'm sorry. There's a condition of the heart that's way different there. Those are two completely different things. But you see, when you look at God, and, and, and when Rehoboam looked at God and said, you're right, he also understood that it's not just about me being wrong, it's about me understanding and knowing who this God is. If, if I really just looked, okay, let's, let's say an example. I'm, I'm married. Uh, my wife is, is named Rachel. We've been married for two years. Been together for four years. We have a baby on the way. Super excited about that. Um, that was my mother. Just don't. Please don't. Anyway, uh, what, what, what ends up happening, though, is that Rachel, I, I start to learn her as I'm in relationship with her. She says she has feelings and emotions and the way she sees things, the way she views things. And she has times when she looks at Josh and goes, man, you suck. Right now, you suck, Josh. That hurts, right? Like, that's not fun. But the deal is that when she says you suck, Josh, I'm angry at you. You're wrong. I have to contend with how she feels and what she sees. We even have the space where she can go to others and say, hey, Josh really sucks right now. And those people in the church get to come to me and go, hey, man, what's your deal right now? Your wife told us some stuff. We want to see what's going on with this. The church reacts, and it, it really comes in, it starts to work in my life, and it reveals my sin. And I have to, at some point, I can harden my heart and go, no, or I can look and go, man, wife, you're right. But if I were to just shut Rachel off and say, I don't want to hear what you have to say about me. In fact, I just want to hear good things from you about me. Then I don't really know Rachel. The only person that I know is me in Rachel. I just want Rachel to be a projection of who I am so she can tell me who I am and who I think I am. I don't know her, though. As is with God. If all I want is for God to look at me and never say, dude, you're wrong. Girl, that was not right. Then I don't want to know God. I just want to know me in God. I just want to project me onto God and say, no, you tell me what I want to hear. But this is the opposite of what Rehoboam does in this moment. Like I said, he, he looks at God and says, man, you know what? You are righteous. The way you've looked at me, the way you've looked at my sin, the way you've looked at what I've done, and the way you've indicted me and said, you're wrong. You are absolutely right, God. That grieves us. I'm not going to lie. When Rachel comes and tells me that I, I'm, I'm not doing well, it hurts. It hurts because I care about her. I love her. I'm in a relationship with her. And it grieves me when those moments happen. And it grieves us when we look at God, a God that largely we've painted in this way that's very loving and forgiving. And he kind of just says, hey, man, um, 
you know, that's okay, man. That wasn't a big deal. But when we have to confront who God really is and see that the way he looks at me and the way I look at me are two completely different things, that he doesn't see me disobeying him and, and, and he doesn't see my sex and, and my, my, how I'm, I'm sinning against him, my drunkenness or my, my drug use or my, he doesn't see any of that and go, hey, I'm just going to sweep that under the rug, man. It's no big deal. I want him to say that. He doesn't see how I treat my wife and then go, man, you know what? Everybody deserves a little bit of forgiveness. It's not a big deal. Um, your wife, she'll get over it. That's what I want him to say. But when I start to understand that that is not how he sees it, he sees it as a rebellion against his kingdom, that he designed the world to be filled with his goodness, and now I've filled it and subverted it with my own anger, my own lies. I, he gave me a beautiful gift in my wife to be treated and to, to, be give the, to give the world an example of what God's love looks like toward her. And now I abuse that gift by treating her poorly. That's how he sees it. But when we're in a relationship with somebody and we're confronted with the different ideals and different views, that, that hurts. It grieves us, especially when it changes and we understand that this person sees me way different than I see me. It begins to create a wound a little bit. And I think this is exactly what the Apostle Paul had in mind when he wrote uh, his second letter to the Corinthian church. Uh, in 2 Corinthians 7, uh, uh, Paul actually had, had written another letter and had had some choice words with the Corinthians because of some things they were doing. He had some choice words for them, and it stung. It, it hurt them. He was someone they admired, respected, and loved, and, and he had some choice words, and they weren't nice words, and, and it, it hit them in a way that made them go, ugh. And in the second letter, Paul says in verse 7 and 8 of chapter 7, uh, in verse 7 and 8 of chapter 7, in 9 and 10, I'm sorry, I now rejoice not because you were grieved. Let's stop right there. The rejoicing isn't in this letter isn't at the fact that someone was hurt. And if you've been at the opposing end of a self-righteous sword that stabs just to make you feel a little bit lower, and that person used the name as Christian, I want you to know I'm sorry on behalf of every single person that's ever done that to you. And if that's been you, if you've pointed your finger and treated someone as though you were better than them just so that they could be cut deeply by their wrong, shame on you. That's not right. Paul goes on to say there's something greater than just grieving that I'm hoping for if I direct an accusation or I bring up something going on in someone's life. There's something more important than just them hurting. He says, I now rejoice not because you were grieved, but because your grief led to repentance. Your grief led to looking at God and going, you're right, and I'm sorry. It realigned this life in a way that now brings glory and honor to God. Now, the thing is, it wasn't that God didn't desire you to be grieved or me to be grieved or the Corinthian church to be grieved because Paul goes around and say, for you were grieved as God willed. God wanted that cut. Psalm 51 says that when David had experienced the, 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 the death of his newborn with Bathsheba after the sin of leaving his wife, he says, the bones you've broken. God sends a prophet and says, you, 
you have taken a man's wife and murdered him. And he's crushed. And then he goes, man, he starts repenting. He says, Lord, restore the joy of your salvation. I'm sorry. I love you. You are right. And then he says, the bones you've broken, God. You grieved me, but now I rejoice. Those same bones, they rejoice. They cry out and say, thank you, God. So God desired there to be some grief, but he desires so that you don't experience any loss from us. But then 10 summarizes it, summarizes it perfectly. He says, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. But worldly grief produces death. So in an instant, Paul paints this picture. There's two different ways we handle this gut punch of knowing that we're wrong. There's two different ways. There's this worldly grief that Paul describes. And this worldly grief has, uh, it's unique and can be expressed in different ways, but there is absolutely one thing that unites them all. We'll get to that in a second. But how we handle this worldly grief, it can be in different ways, right? A lot of times when, when someone says, you're wrong, the automatic response for some of us is, it's that guy's fault or it's that person. And they're like, man, why are you so mad behind the wheel? The guy cut me off, right? It's like, no, man, no, no you're, you're angry. It's not that guy's fault that he cut you off. You can, re, you can retreat your middle finger. You don't have to flick him off because he cut you off. That's, that's not his fault. So one, we can point a finger outwardly. Two, we can take a look and say, man, you know what? No, I deserve an, another chance. I only did a little bit wrong. That's, that's just like pride to the max. That's, that's all I got to say about that. And then there's, there's this other one that looks and goes, oh, man, I suck, man. Golly, I suck so bad. And if you notice, each one of these points its gaze at either yourself or someone around you. And, and Paul says that this grief, that this, this leads to death. But then he goes on to say, but there's a godly grief as well. There's a godly grief. And this godly grief, it leads to a repentance. It produces a repentance that leads to salvation. And you notice there's a distinct, there's a distinct connection between how Rehoboam humbled himself and this godly grief. What it wasn't was, man, I'm wrong. It was true that Rehoboam was wrong. But you see, Rehoboam's response wasn't, man, I'm so wrong. It was, God is so right. This godly grief doesn't look at me or look at others and go, oh man, well, it's this or it's this or it's this. It simply looks at God and goes, you're right. You're absolutely 100% right. And we begin to have to contend with who God is in this godly grief. But the beautiful part to this godly grief is that in the midst of it, when I'm looking at God and I'm going, man, you're absolutely right that I'm wrong. You're absolutely holy. And that's what produces your indictment of me. Man, you're absolutely just to come down and rain down wrath on me. When we're in the midst of seeing that, we end up looking into God and he starts to show us, I am absolutely holy, but I am not only holy. I'm absolutely just, but I am not only just. I'm absolutely righteous, but I am not only righteous. And if you take a paintbrush and paint that picture of me, you will make a grave mistake with how you depict me. Because although I am righteous, I am also loving. And because I am, and though I am just, I'm also merciful. Though I am holy, I'm also gracious. 
This repentance leads to taking our eyes off of us and putting them on God, who we see is right in his indictment, but we also see is gracious in how he handles this indictment. This gracious God, this gracious God, and I look at him that sees and goes, man, I'm absolutely right in how I would judge you, Josh. Josh, I am absolutely right in everything you've done, and you have absolutely lied. It's not that you've lied and you're not a liar. You're absolutely a liar. It's not that you've lusted and you're not an adulterer. Josh, you're absolutely an adulterer, but you know what? I love you. I love you, and I will send my son to live a life you could never live, and he will die in your place. He'll take the punishment you deserve on his body. So that he, when he rises from the dead, can extend grace to you and say, your past, your actions, they're forgiven. But this, 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 this grief, this repentance, it, it starts with who we look at initially. This, it's why in Romans 3, Paul takes this horrid picture of man. Go to Romans 3 and just look at what it says. It says, man, his mouth is an open grave. Death and destruction, they lie in his wake. No one desires God. All of them have become worthless. And right after that, it says, but God. That's you. And then there's God. Where you failed, he succeeded. Where you came short, he completed. You have an accurate view of you, but now take your view away from you and set it on this miraculous, godly, beautiful, amazing I said godly. I was going to end with God. Sorry, but this beautiful God. Take your eyes off of you and set it on, set them on him. You see, there's that, that celebration when we actually get to look at who we are. And then we look at who God is and we say, thank you, God. Not just thank you for what you've done for me. Thank you that it was your character that even made you, made you willing to do something like that for me. You didn't do it reluctantly. You did it because you're fully good. And you did it because you're fully loving. And despite the fact that I was indicted rightly, that the way you've, you've handled me, the charges you've put against me, they're absolutely true. You and your love and mercy have made a way for me. That is goodness to God. When I think about my life, you guys, you guys see this part, right? Like standing up, yelling about Jesus. Um, you guys see all that. But when I know me, and I understand the intricacies of how bad I can be, you guys don't know me and my life like that. The way I've lived in the past, you don't know that. There was a time and place where I had to look in the mirror and contend with that person. And when I think about the way I've lived leading up to when the Lord saved me, I look at God and I think, why would you save someone like me? Why would you even do that? And I'm trying to rein it in because I don't want to cry, but it's astonishing that you in your goodness would look at me guilty and say, I love you. In fact, I will make this enemy my friend. I will die for you. Uh, I'm going to kind of go off track and then bring it back in for a second. Uh, there, there are times, and I've, actually, I've literally been asked this question, where people have like looked at me like, hey man, why are you so like big on sin? Like big, why are you so, why are you talking about sin so much? 
quite a question. Like, I'm, I'm a preacher. I love preaching. Sin's a big topic in the Bible. I mean, those are easy enough to answer, like, easy enough responses to that question. Um, but, but I think the, the more distinct reasons of why I address it so much are, uh, we, we've kind of covered them today. One, it's, it's the destroyer of our lives, guys. It, it destroys our lives. And the thing is, it's, it's creeping like a predator in high grass. My flesh wants me to go to it. The world, the, the, our culture pushes it on me. The, the enemy, the devil tempts me to it. Uh, it. It's all around me. And the moment I think I'm safe, it pounces and destroys my life. You see, but, but there's another side that I, I think, you know, that's another reason why I think sin is important because when we rightly see, and this is kind of reason number two, when we, we rightly see our sin, it begins to unveil the massive beauty of God. Every time I look at myself and I go, man, there was something so much in me that was worth God saving, it lets me look at God and go, man, I was, uh, you got lucky, God. You got lucky with me. That's how I feel about my wife. Is that how God should feel about me? Should he be lucky that he has me? When I look at my life and I think about that God is holy, it seems to not, not be the case. But when I understand that, man, my sin was so great and this God was so gracious, this Romans 5.20 thought where I sin and his grace increases all the more, it fills me with an understanding of his goodness of his beauty, of his righteousness. Man, I owe everything to him. I'm going to pursue whatever I choose to pursue in my life, but it is going to be undergirded and it is going to be bookended by the fact that when I was God's enemy, he made me his friend by dying in my place. That should start to inspire and move us to be like, man, this God is beautiful. This God... This God is amazing. One of the most popular hymns in, I think, all of Christendom uh, and its author uh, just, just really embodied this well in, 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 one of his, in this particular hymn. Uh, the hymn is Come Thou Fount, and the author is Robert Robinson. Uh, Robinson uh, was sent as a teenager to London to be an apprentice by his mother. And when he was there, uh, he began to, according to, I want to get the, the quote right, according to uh, historian and hymnologist Kenneth Osbeck, associated with a notorious gang of hoodlums and lived a debauched life. He just gave himself over to the sin. He, just, he was in London, it was a big city. It's kind of like what kids feel when they kind of go to college. It's what we feel when we move to a big city and all of a sudden it's all there. He just gave himself over to these things. And it was in 1972, I mean 1972, definitely not 1972, 1772, um, where this man, Robert Robinson, went to hear the evangelist George Whitfield preach. And George Whitfield made Robinson's sin utterly clear. The Bible, uh, not the Bible, his story goes on to tell us that for the next three years he would walk with a dread and fear of what God was going to do to him. And then in 1775, he would 
see the beauty that God had extended him grace that he could not afford. That in the midst of his dread, God would show him so much love to pay the price of this fear, of this sin for him so that he could be reconciled to God. And it was during that same time he began to pen the song, Come Thou Fount, which in the third verse writes the words, Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Daily I'm constrained to be. He recognized it every single day. It wasn't just his life before, but every day and every mistake he made were actions. Well, not every, every mistake he made, yeah, were actions against God. And every day to see God's grace overwhelm those actions, he said, man, I'm so indebted to this grace that I cannot afford, but he has paid for me. In our culture of self-reliance, for some of us, that sounds like a burden. That sounds like I sit there and go, oh, I hate being in debt, right? Like, <laughs> like this. I hate it when people do stuff for me. It's self-reliance that, that the world tells us we need. And, and he understood, man, I'm so indebted to this grace. But instead of handling it like that, the very next stanza, he says, let your goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to you. Let it bind my wandering heart to thee. When he saw how indebted he was to God and his grace, it showed him God's goodness. Instead of feeling indebted and a burden, he said, man, the fact that you've given me this, it displays your goodness, God. Let that goodness be what binds me to you. When I even want to walk away, let me think back at the fact that you in your goodness saved me from me and let it move me to cling to you for all life. When we're able to rightly see that God is just and he's right, but he would be so loving to take the cross in our place. We see God's justice and his love meet at the cross like a chemical reaction and explode with God's glory, beauty, and goodness. Now, at the end of the day, uh, we could all ask the question, what does this even matter, man? It's a good question. It's a, it's a, I hope you asked yourself that because uh, you could at least think critically and be like, what, is this, what does this even mean for me? Uh, well, first, there's some of us in here that, that we have not rested in God maybe in our entire life. And in order to rest in God, we have to find a place where we see that there's a balance between his righteousness, which is full and complete, and his goodness, which has paid the price on my behalf. We can rest in the fact that he's good, he's great, he's God. And today there are some people in here that have never, ever, ever trusted in that Jesus. And man, I pray today that you would come to faith in him, that you would give your life to Christ, that you would accept him. However you want to call it, I hope that in your heart you would place your faith in that Jesus who has paid such a high price for you, but that you would also repent and turn from the things that caused it anyway. That's a part of it. But I think the other part, today, but why I would want to bring this up is because the, this reality, this truth, this gospel, it, it begins to change how we view the world. It 
prioritizes where we see the value of our life and the value of God. We see that God is so valuable. I cling to him for everything. And that really prioritizes how I see the rest of the world. And I think that's important right now because a lot of us can view the world and have this sense of like, man, this is a messed up place. Right? Uh, We all know that last week, uh, last Sunday night, uh, a man went to the 30-something floor of a hotel room and then just sprayed his gun across a crowd of people at a country music festival. That is absolutely evil. That is rooted in the very thing we've taken part in discussing today, sin. That man's depravity and his sinful desires, that is what drove and created that situation. And when we lay down tonight, we can go and and say, man, this world is broken. Probably when I heard it, I thought about the fact that I've been to music festivals. What if someone had decided to take a gun and wipe me out too? Wipe my family out. I have friends at music festivals right now. It's scary, but we can also ponder other things. Racial injustices, the sanctity of human life in the womb, sex trafficking. I mean, there's so many things to be wrapped up in. And at the end of the day, it can turn into a burden that makes us look at the world and go, man, I feel a little hopeless. But the gospel begins to make a a new frame for us to look at those situations through. Uh, We are able to look at the world and go, man, there is absolutely hope for the world because this God was just or is just and is merciful. And I think Jesus absolutely embodies this statement in Luke 10. If you could put that on the board. In Luke 10, Jesus gets together 72 disciples and then he sends them out to do ministry work. And they kill it. They go and they cast out demons and they heal people and they do all this stuff. And then they come back and they're like, Jesus, you should have seen it. We cast out demons. And people were like getting up and walking. Jesus, it was crazy. It was awesome. And you know, like you expect that moment to be like, man, you did a good job going to do what I told you to do. You did a real good job. But Jesus' response is somewhat, like, uh, he says, I know you've done all that. However, don't rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. You see, he doesn't dismiss what happened. He sent them out to do that ministry work. When we feel the weight of the brokenness of the world, we are to absolutely go and attack that and be a light in the midst of darkness. But we have to understand those are gospel issues we fight. It's not that I'm fighting sex trafficking. I'm fighting that there's depravity and sin in men who drive them to make things like pornography and steal young girls to put them in the movies. I'm not fighting against racial injustice. I'm fighting against the fact there are men who struggle and women who struggle with seeing other people as lesser or greater than them because of their own sin. And the answer and solution to that is the fact that God is just and merciful. The fact that in his justice and in his mercy, he provided a way for these individuals to be renewed. There's hope for the world, but that hope is the gospel. And when I go and fight those battles, I'm to take the sword of the gospel and fight, fight, fight. But when I go home and lay down at night, and I 
that day saw that not a lot changed. Jesus is saying, man, you're happy that the spirits submit to you today? But what about tomorrow when they don't? You can't find your hope in the happenings of the day, and you can go fight in my name and fight with the gospel to make the world new. But when it doesn't happen that day, when the spirits don't submit to you, you have a hope that binds you to me that's far deeper than just what happened around you that day. He doesn't dismiss what they did, but he takes the reality of their salvation and prioritizes it above what happened that day. And he says, man, when you lay down at night, your hope lies in the fact that your name is written in heaven. The ESV says that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. We have that hope today because God is just and merciful. That he indicted me and you and all mankind correctly. But he responded in grace and mercy and love. Today, I want to pray for us. Uh, one, that the individuals who don't know this God, that you would put your trust, your faith in him. Okay? But then secondarily, for those of us that are looking at the condition of the world or even the condition of our own lives, this week, the past three weeks have been brutal for me. And my wife, my wife got into a car wreck. We were scared for seven hours that our baby might not make it. Um, you know, we got home, there was a snake at our front door. If I was like uber spiritual, I'd be like, there's something going on. But I was like, it's, it's raining. Um, and then the week after that, our dogs got bit by snakes and we had to take them to the vet. It was just like a whirlwind of stuff going on, right? But that, that one moment where I sat there and thought, is my unborn child going to live today? Am I going to get to see this little girl? And hold her. Am I going to be able to think about? Am I going to live out the things that actually I'm imagining in my mind, building up the anticipation? There were some scary moments where I thought, I'm not sure if that's going to happen. But Jesus, in that moment in my life, says, "But your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, and there will be a day when no more tears fall from the eyes, and I have made everything new, and I'm." my people's God, and they're my people, and I am with them. Today, I hope that we can rest in that, and for those that don't know that joy, that you would come to it.